Thanks for being here. Would you grab your Bible, turn to Jonah chapter 1. Jonah chapter 1. Since it's Father's Day, I thought we would talk about boats. Jonah chapter 1. In the next 30 minutes, we are going to try to tackle the entire book of Jonah. Jonah 1 through 4. I love to do the Black Friday shopping. Anybody else like doing this Black Friday shopping? No? Okay. I don't necessarily like all the bargains. That's not why I do it. I just like being at ground zero where there's a chance that this either turns into like thrifty holiday shopping or a riot. Like I think that's a very interesting place to live. And so I wake up on early Friday morning, the day after Thanksgiving, to go and be a part of the festivities. And if I get my relatives discounted gifts, then all the better. And so this past Black Friday, I got in the car. It was early. The sun was not quite up yet. And, you know, and I wasn't getting ready fully because it's really early in the morning. And so I threw on a pair of tennis shoes and jeans and my favorite jacket. Now it's late November, you know, at that time. And so it's kind of iffy whether or not we need a jacket, but I've been wearing a jacket for about a month and a half because I bought it and I instantly fell in love with it. I know that's weird for a guy to say that they loved a piece of their clothing, but I I did. I just love this jacket. I don't know why, but I did. And I've been wearing it every single day uh, since late September, which, you know, living in Houston, you don't need a jacket in late September. You're still allowed to wear shorts, but I would wear shorts and a jacket. That's how much I like this this thing. And so I'm, I'm dressed for success uh, on my way to the mall. That's where this particular Black Friday is leading me. And I get to the intersection closest to the mall and I see someone uh, holding a sign asking for money, just as people do here in Houston. You're, you're used to that. You pass that all the time. And I get this, this overwhelming sense in me to give that person my jacket. Starting to get cool. You know, it doesn't get cold here, hardly. So a coat is not that helpful, but a jacket would be very helpful to somebody living out on the street. And I just get this sense of this is what I should do. But listen, I cannot explain to you how much I did not want to give the person my jacket. So I instantly started going through all of the excuses why I should keep the jacket for myself. Number one, it was mine, I think is a good... <laughs> A good starting place. I'm thinking, well, what if it's not their size? And what if they're, you know, what if they have a lot of jackets? And then it maybe would be potentially offensive for me to hand out this jacket to them. And I was just reasoning with myself. Really what I was doing is stalling until the light turned green. Because then the light turned green. And I was like, well, I may have done it. But I, now I can't. Because people behind me, you know, honking the horn. I want to be a good witness for Jesus. And so I can't hold up the stoplight here. And so I drove on into the mall. And I uh, did my shopping. I lasted for about 10 minutes and then I got back in my car because it in fact had turned into a riot, uh, something I was not interested in. But then that, once I got back in the car in, my park, in the parking lot, I got that sense again, like I need to give my jacket away. And, and some of you are thinking, well, it's consumerism. I mean, God was clearly teaching you a lesson. Here you are loving a piece of your clothing. How weird and lame and un-Jesus-like is that? He only had one outfit. He didn't have a jacket, you know, and you love this jacket. And then you're going to the mall, hello, to buy more things. God is clearly trying to teach you a lesson. Well, you'd be wrong and self-righteous, you know, (laughs) because I was going to the mall not to buy for myself, but to buy for other people. So generosity, hello, leave me alone. Also, my 
jacket was not nice. It cost $15. It was the cheapest jacket that I've ever owned in my whole life. And yet was the jacket that I love the most. So I got the sense though that I need to give it away. This is what God is asking me to do. And so I go into negotiation mode. You ever do that where you negotiate with God? God is a great negotiator, but his negotiations seem to be all very one-sided. And, uh, but that's not stopping me. You know, I'm thinking, um, what's, what's the way that I can both be sort of faithful and keep my jacket? That is a win-win scenario here. And so I throw out a deal to God, which he does not respond to, but I accept it on his behalf. Uh, I will give my jacket away if I see someone and... I can hand it to them. I don't want them to risk their life coming across the traffic to get it from me. So if I see someone, and, and I, I thought about just driving through parking lots the whole way home to guarantee that I didn't see anybody who might need a jacket. And uh, sure enough, I make one turn out of the mall and there's somebody and I take the jacket off and hand it away. Uh, I'm still a little bitter about it. If you, if you can't tell, it, it counted zero for any kind of crown in heaven. I lost it that day. Because we've all been in that moment where what it seems like God wants, what God wants and what you want are not the same. If you've been a follower of Jesus for more than 20 minutes, then you've had this thing where what you want and what you perceive that God wants are not the same. That's a frustrating place to be, especially if at the end of the day you want to do what God wants to do, but you can't help but the way that you feel. So what do we do? Thankfully, Jonah is here to teach us what not to do. We're going to learn from his life, but to do the opposite. And there are going to be four things this morning that will be helpful for us when what we want to do is not what God wants to do. Jonah was a prophet in northern Israel about 600 years before Jesus was born. We know he's a historical figure, or at least it's safe to believe that he was a real historical figure, that this is not some kind of philosophical story invented to tell a, 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 for a purpose or a point or a sermon because Jesus believed that he was a historical figure. In fact, Jesus referenced Jonah in Matthew chapter 12. And Jonah is going to be sent to Nineveh. Nineveh was the Assyrian capital. It was the largest city for about 50 years um, in the Assyrian reign. It was a city that was so large that it would take you three full days just to walk around it or walk through it. A significant city. So four things that we can learn from Jonah about what we should do when we don't want what God wants. Number one, don't run. Number one, don't run says this in chapter 1 of verse 1. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of uh, Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it. For their evil has come up before me. But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. And he went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare and went on board to go with them to Tarshish, away from the presence of the Lord. Now I know these cities, they don't mean a lot. So I brought a map 
for us today. And you see on the map uh, the three markers. Uh, the one in the middle is Israel, and that is where Jonah received this word from the Lord. It's also where this port Joppa that he goes to was located. Uh, Nineveh is to the right, about 500 miles between Israel and Nineveh. And then all the way on the other side of the map, uh, near modern-day Spain, is Tarshish. Now, historians, Bible scholars, nobody knows for sure where ancient Tarshish uh, is, is located, was located. But if you take all the, the written material about it, all the historians, all the Bible scholars, and you kind of put them together, the consensus, if there is a consensus, is that it was somewhere in western Mediterranean, so somewhere near eastern Spain. And there's 2,000 miles between Israel and where that marker is there in modern day Spain, Tarshish. And so Jonah gets this word from God and he's supposed to go to Nineveh, but he doesn't want to. He wants to go to Tarshish. This would be like God telling you to go to Lubbock and instead you go to Maine. It's about the same. About 500 miles to Lubbock, about 2,000 miles to the edge of Maine. And why is he running? Verse 3, away from the presence of the Lord. See, Jonah thought that the distance between where he was supposed to be and where he was headed could be a covering for his resistance of God's will. This is what happens in the Garden of Eden. God creates everything, and then Adam and Eve get a mandate that they can pretty much do whatever they want to do, but they can't eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. But yet that's what they did because that's what they wanted. It didn't matter what God wanted. What they wanted was to eat the fruit, and they did. And all of a sudden they had the awareness that they were not wearing any clothes. And so they take fig leaves. Now, I've always imagined that in my mind, like they just kind of grab the leaves that were closest to them to cover themselves up. But if you go back and read Genesis chapter 3, it actually says that they sewed the fig leaves together. So they took the time to cover up their mistake. They were covering up their resistance of God's will. And this is what we like to do when we don't want to do what God wants us to do. We try to put some distance. We try to give ourselves some covering. This is what Jonah does by going to Tarshish. But we need to understand that there is no amount of distance that we can put ourselves in that would keep us from God's presence. This is what Psalm 139 says. If you want to turn there in verse 1, O Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all my ways. Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it all together. You hem me in behind and before and lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high. I cannot attain it. Where shall I go from your spirit or where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. If I say, surely the darkness shall cover me and the light about me be night, even the darkness is not dark to you. The night is as bright as the day, for darkness is as light with you. Now I've read that psalm, and maybe you have a hundred times. And I cannot figure out whether the psalmist thinks that this is a good thing or a bad thing. I can't tell if he's happy that he can't flee from God's presence. Or I can't tell if he wants to flee from God's presence and is frustrated that he can't. And what I've realized is maybe 
what I have a hard time discerning is not the attitude of the psalmist, not the person who wrote this, whether it's positive or negative that he can't get away from God's presence. Maybe it's more a reflection of how I feel at that moment. Do I think that this is a good thing that I can't get away from God's presence or am I frustrated about it because there are some things that I would rather keep hidden? I mean, just use it as a litmus test. Verse five, you hem me in behind and before. Does that feel like protection to you that you're hemmed in or does it feel like you're trapped? Because if you and I are resisting God's will when we read that we're hemmed in from behind and in front, uh, it will feel like we've been trapped and not like we are protected. But Jonah should have known this, that there's no amount of distance, whether it's 500 miles or 2,000 miles, that can free us from God's will if God does not want us to be free from his will. You know, one of the, the big questions that we wrestle with internally, probably not with words, but we feel this, and you hear this in theological discussions, is what is more powerful? What has God made more powerful? Our freedom or his sovereignty? Meaning his control and reign over everything or our ability to choose. Because God has given us a a tremendous amount of authority and power and responsibility. You go back to the Garden of Eden, six days, God creates everything. So every place you've ever been, every picture that you've ever looked, God created all of that in six days. And on the sixth day, he created humanity. He gave them a couple of rules. And within just one page, they've wrecked it all. But he gave them that power. He gave them that responsibility. He gave them that much freedom. It's like about a month ago, Jackson, who's eight, he's in the Boy Scouts and they were all coming over to our house because I was leading them through that day's activity and uh, we were building birdhouses. Now, what's crazy is the birdhouses were about this big. The hammers that they brought were like this big and the nails you, you could barely see without a microscope. So when I undid the pack of the birdhouses and they're on all their pieces, I knew there was no way that the eight-year-old boys were gonna be able to, to hammer all these things together, mostly because I could not hammer them together. And so I spent a a little over an hour putting them all together leaving out a few pieces so that they could glue them on so it would feel like they did it but really I did it because I just thought that was going to be the best use of my time because I didn't want it to be nine o'clock and like eight you know eight-year-old boys are still hanging out in my front yard and so I get all of this ready and they look nice. They're ready for the boys to come in. I got them set up at tables and then the boys come and, uh, and then three minutes later, it was a train wreck. It was terrible. The birdhouses look horrible and uh, I regretted ever hosting it in the first place, right? <laughs> but this is what you do when you put freedom into the hands of, of children, So imagine how God felt. You created everything. I mean, birdhouses were nothing. I mean, Grand Canyon, mountains, the Caribbean. I mean, he did all these things and then he put the responsibility into the hands of human beings and they wrecked it within a page, within just a few paragraphs. So God has made your choices free and very powerful. But he has not made them so free and given you so much freedom that his will cannot overtake it if he wants it to. That's what happens to Jonah. Jonah thinks that he's running away from God's will, but God is not letting him do that. The second thing 
that is helpful for us to remember when we don't want what God wants is we should count the cost of resisting God's will. So when you come to that moment where you're like, I feel like this is what God wants from me. This is what the Bible says that I should do, but yet this is really what I want to do. We should count the cost before we resist him. Jonah chapter one, verse four. But the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea and there was a mighty tempest on the sea so that the ship threatened to break up. And then the mariners were afraid and each cried out to his God and they hurled the cargo that was in the ship into the sea to lighten it for them. But Jonah had gone down into the inner part of the ship and had lain down and was fast asleep. So the captain came and said to him, what do you mean, you sleeper? Arise, call out to your God. Perhaps the God will give a thought to us that we may not perish. And they said to one another, come, let us cast lots that we may know on whose account this evil has come upon us. So what they're doing is they're like, let's pray to our gods and then flip a coin. And whoever it lands on, it's that person's fault. They're desperate. So they cast lots and the lot fell on Jonah. They picked heads and he picked tails. Then they said to him, tell us on whose account this evil has come upon us. What is your occupation? Where do you come from? What is your country? And of what people are you? And he said to them, I am a Hebrew and I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. And then the men were exceedingly afraid and said to him, what is this that you have done? For the men knew that he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord because he had told them. And they said to him, what shall we do to you that the sea may quiet down for us? For the sea grew more and more bad. (laughs) And he said to them, pick me up and hurl me into the sea. Then the sea will quiet down for you. I read good and stuff. For I know it is because of me that this great tempest has come upon you. Nevertheless, the men rode hard to get back to dry land, meaning they didn't want to hurt him. For the sea grew more and more bad against them. Therefore, they called out to the Lord, O Lord, let us not perish for this man's life and lay not on us innocent blood for you, O Lord, have done as it pleased you. So they picked up Jonah and hurled him into the sea and the sea ceased from its raging. Then the men feared the Lord exceedingly and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. And the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah and Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights." When we come to that moment where what we want and what God wants are not the same thing, we need to count the cost of resisting his will. We need to count the cost first for the people around us. See, when we resist God's will, there is fallout in other people's lives. It's Father's Day when a father resists God's will to be a good and great man within his home. When he leaves, when he abandons, when he cheats, when he is lazy... His home, his children, his wife experienced the fallout of that. Just like Jonah. Jonah got on the boat. He was just doing what he wanted to do. He didn't count the cost for those sailors. The storm comes, putting the sailor's life at risk. And it was some storm. These were professional mariners, the Bible says. So you know that they had been through storms before, but yet this storm was exceedingly great and they were terrified. That was Jonah's fault that they were in that position. 
Jonah is a prophet of the one true God. And yet what happens when he gets on the boat? The storm comes and he causes all of these sailors to turn to their false idols. Which many of us are guilty of. That we have lived our lives in such a way that we have resisted God's will for us. God has said to do this. We decided to do something different. And people were less inclined to believe in Jesus because we resisted his will. They were pushed away instead of being drawn near. Jonah puts them in the place where they have to decide, do we, do we hurt this man or, or do we try to save him? He, they lose all of their cargo, all the money for their occupation was lost because of Jonah's disobedience. And I know many people that I love and care about bear the scars of my resistance to God's will. We need to count the cost for other people if we resist. But we also need to count the cost for ourselves. Because what happens to Jonah? They throw him overboard because this is what he told them to do. And it says that he was swallowed by a great fish that the Lord had appointed. Now, I I know that it's weird because the Bible is saying fish here. But we grew up with the story being Jonah and the whale. Uh, and some people get real uptight about that. Anytime you say Jonah and the whale, they're like, no, 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 the Bible says it was a great fish. Let me just set you free. I don't think as Jonah's retelling the story, he was concerned about what giant sea creature it was that ate him up. It's a whale, it's a mammal, or it's a fish. Fish are not mammals. That's a reptile, maybe. Uh, no, it's an amphibian. No, it's a fish. I don't remember what it is. Education. (laughs) So this giant fish swallows Jonah whole. Now some people are like, that's totally unrealistic. I can't believe in the Bible because that's totally unrealistic. And listen, I would have believed you too because I'm more of a land person and not a sea person. But all you need to, to do is Google sea creatures huge and you will get some pretty terrifying pictures back on your screen. A couple years ago, I'm at the Georgia Aquarium in, in Atlanta, and uh, we're in a group, and they take us into this giant um, aquarium, and you see this huge wall of glass, and all of a sudden, this whale shark swims by. Uh, if you're not familiar with a whale shark, it's like a shark and a whale, like, together, and it, it's humongous. It's the size of the school bus, and we're looking at it. It's just massive. I mean, it's, it's the biggest thing that I've ever seen in my life, and then someone says, oh, we're going to swim with that thing. And I'm like, yay, you know, because they take us back into this locker room and they start, you know, fitting us for wetsuits. And I've never worn a wetsuit before. So they ask you how tall you are. It's a good idea to just be honest about that. Uh, and, and, then, and then even better idea when they ask you how much you weigh, just be honest. Like it's embarrassing maybe, but just be honest. What I did was I subtracted about 10 or 15 pounds maybe because I once weighed that and I was a little unclear about what kind of tense they were using, past or present tense. And, uh, and so, so I was saying I was a little bit lighter than, than I was. Well, when you put the wetsuit on, like that matters because they made the wetsuit for a much smaller person. And so I'm suffocating as I'm walking to the edge of this pool and we're going to swim with this, this whale shark. And so they give us the oxygen mask and we're just swimming on the top. And they have one rule. The rule is you are not allowed to touch the whale shark. And I'm thinking, no problem. I'm, not, I'm going to be, you know, watching from a distance, uh, you know. But uh, the whale shark wants to be your best friend. 
Because he would come as close as possible to you without actually touching you. And if I did reach my hand down, I could have grabbed his fin. It was an unbelievable experience. And now, you, if you don't know whale sharks because you're not super educated like me, I think we're already on the same page about my level of education. Uh, I brought a picture for you to see just how big this thing is. And so that's a whale shark, and that's people. And you can, you can see, there's no forced perspective here, that person or me could easily have fit inside of that whale shark. Because when a whale shark opens their mouth, they don't just open our mouth, their mouth like that we would do. Their mouth can become as big as their entire body. It is amazing. Again, just Google it, whale shark mouth, and you will be fine. And you will see how big and how easily you could slide into one of these, uh, these whale sharks' mouth. Now, they're very gentle, and they would not hurt you. Um, But if one had a mission from God, you'd be in trouble. Because it says, and the Lord appointed a great fish. So this was not just a whale shark or something like it. This was a whale shark on a mission. (laughs) So I don't know if whale sharks existed in the Mediterranean Sea four or 5,000 years ago. But something did, and something swallowed Jonah. Now think about how much easier Jonah's trip to Nineveh would have been if he had just went to Nineveh. Because he's going to end up in Nineveh, and you know this, even if you just have the most basic understanding, and you've heard this story one of them, he's going to end up in Nineveh. But he's going to have to take the long way around. And listen, the long way around is the hard way around. He could have just gotten on a camel, and it's 500 miles. That's a long way to ride on a camel. But it's shorter than getting swallowed by a fish and then getting on a camel and then going 500 miles. Many of us have eventually gotten to where God wanted us to be, but we took the long way around, and it is a hard way around. You may be single this morning. And the word from the Lord is wait. But waiting to you is Nineveh. You don't want any part of that. So you're going to go to Tarshish. And you're going to push through into that relationship. Even though there are red flags, red flags, red flags. Waiting is Nineveh. And you don't have time for Nineveh. And it's going to be the long way around. And it's going to be a hard way around. Some of us are wounded. It's real and it's deep. And the word from the Lord is forgive. But forgiveness is Nineveh. And we don't want any part of it. And we're going to take the long way around of revenge and cold shoulders. And you know who's going to suffer? You. Because the worst kind of pain is the self-inflicted pain of resisting God's will. God will have his say in our lives. We can agree early or we can agree late. And there is so much blessing in there. We save ourselves so much pain and heartache. By just going to Nineveh when he says to go to Nineveh. And not taking the long way around. 
Then we get to chapter 2. He's been swallowed by the fish and Jonah starts to pray, probably. You would too. But it seems like he's having a change of heart here. Then Jonah prayed to the Lord, his God, from the belly of the fish, saying, I called out to the Lord out of my distress, and he answered me. Out of the belly of Sheol I cried, and you heard my voice, for you cast me into the deep and into the heart of the seas, and the flood surrounded me. All your waves and your billows passed over me. And then I said, I am driven away from your sight, yet I shall again look upon your holy temple. The waters closed in over me to take my life. The deep surrounded me. Weeds were wrapped about my head. At the roots of the mountains, I went down to the land whose bars closed upon me forever. Yet you brought my, up my life from the pit, O Lord my God. When my life was fainting away, I remembered the Lord, and my prayer came to you into your holy temple. Those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. But I, with the voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you. What I have vowed, I will pay. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Jonah had committed to be a prophet to God and, and he had backed out on that when he went to Tarshish. But now he's saying, I'm, I made a vow and I'm gonna fulfill my vow. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Verse 10, and the Lord spoke to the fish and it vomited Jonah out upon the dry land. I know that was a word that you were looking forward to reading on this Father's Day. The third thing that will be helpful for us when we don't want what God wants. We need to remember that we align our will by aligning our hearts. Align your will by aligning your heart. See, Jonah is going through the motions of obedience here. I mean, it looks like he has repented. But then we get to chapter 3, verse 1. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message that I tell you. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh, according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, three days' journey in breadth. Jonah began to go into the city, going a day's journey. And he called out, Yet forty days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. And the people of Nineveh believed God. And they called for a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. Chapter 3, verse 6. And the word reached the king of Nineveh. And he arose from his throne, removed his robe, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat in ashes. And he issued a proclamation and published, through, uh, and published it through Nineveh. By the decree of the king and his nobles, let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Let them not feed or drink water, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth and let them call out mightily to God. Let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. Who knows, God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. And when God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God did relent of the disaster that he had said he would do to them, and he did not do it. Chapter 4, verse 1. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. And he prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? Listen, it is a bad idea for us to consider bad news what God considers good news. And the hardest way that you will be tested and I will be tested in this is when something good happens to somebody that we don't want good things to happen to. But he's blessed them and he's favoring them and we say, no, that's evil. That's what Jonah is doing here. But instead of a promotion, it's salvation. That's why I made haste to flee to Tarshish 
For I knew that you were a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. And the Lord said, do you do well to be angry? Jonah is going through the motions of obedience, but we see here there's no change of heart. It's like the story of the prodigal son. Remember that? The young son takes his father's inheritance and he, he goes away and he just spends it, just spends it on wild living, prostitutes, drinking, just everything, goes and spends it. And, and then, then he's stuck and he's working as a farmhand. He's feeding the pigs. He's just in a terrible way. He's totally depressed. And the Bible says in Luke chapter 15, I believe verse 17, that he came to his senses. And he goes home, but he goes home with a speech. Father, I've sinned against heaven. I've sinned against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But imagine if the prodigal son went home, but he had never come to his senses. Imagine if he, he just said, you know what? I don't like feeding pigs and, and um, I'm going to go home. My, my dad won't make me do this and it, it'd be great. But there was no change in him. He didn't realize what he had done. It was just a change of location. This is what has happened to Jonah. He ran to Tarshish. Now he's in Nineveh, but we see when he's in Nineveh, he's still the same man that he was in Tarshish. His heart has not changed. He had a moment of repentance. And I believe in the belly of that fish that he believed and meant all of the words that he was saying. But as soon as he got back on dry land, what God wanted and what he wanted were not the same thing. And so this time he went through the motions of obedience but without the change of heart. See, we repent sometimes. We feel bad. We mess up and we feel real bad. And we apologize and we pray and ask God to forgive us, but that repentance only lasts as long as it is until I don't get what I want again. Then we're back to being frustrated with God and choosing our way over his way. And listen, you think that would be bad, but it gets worse for Jonah. Chapter 4, verse 5. And Jonah went out of the city and set to the east of the city and made a booth for himself there. And he sat under it in the shade till he should see what would become of the city. How sick is this? That he goes into Nineveh and he preaches to these people. If you don't repent, God is going to bring disaster on you. He walks outside the city, makes himself a nice place and waits for them to be destroyed. Now the Lord God appointed a plant and made it come up over Jonah that it might be a shade over his head to save him from his discomfort. So Jonah was exceedingly glad because of the plant. But when dawn came up the next day, God appointed a worm that attacked the plant so that it withered. When the sun rose, God appointed a scorching east wind and the sun beat down on the head of Jonah so that he was faint. And he asked that he might die and said, it is better for me to die than to live. But God said to Jonah, do you do well to be angry for the plant? Listen, if God ever asks you if you have the right to be angry, just keep your mouth shut. To say no, or keep your mouth shut. Jonah, he says, yes, I do well to be angry, angry enough to die. And the Lord said, you pity the plant for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow, which came into being in a night and perished in a night. And should I not pity Nineveh, the great city 
in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left and also much cattle. The fourth and last thing this morning that we need to remember when we don't want what God wants is to give yourself, uh, give your story a better ending than Jonah. Give your story a better ending than Jonah's story because listen, his story's over. That's it. That's all the information that we have on Jonah. You, from this moment to the end of your life, are going to have the opportunity hundreds, maybe thousands of times to be in moments where what you want and what God wants are not the same. What you feel like is right, what you really want, what you'd really like to do, and what you feel like and see and read that God wants you to do are not going to be the same. Hundreds of stories you're going to be able to live. So give your stories better ending than Jonah's story. Because his story ends with phrases like, thinking like, they deserve and I deserve. The fastest way to convince yourself that you deserve to do whatever you want to do is just to tell yourself you deserve it. That you're worth it. You deserve it. But Jonah should have just traced the grace that he had been shown. The grace of the fact that he was a prophet of God. What an opportunity. That God not only brought him in to part of his plan, but would send him a word. What privilege would that be to have a word from God? And that he would give him a place to put his gifts and passions and calling into practice to be sent to Nineveh, to be trusted with that much responsibility. That's the grace of God. But then he didn't want to, and he went on a boat, and the storm came, and the storm was the grace of God. It didn't look like the grace of God, but it was to bring him back to his place. And then the Bible says a second time the word of the Lord came. He got another chance. It's the grace of God. And then when he got to Nineveh, they didn't kill him. These were bad people, and they didn't kill him, and they welcomed him. The grace of God. And then not only did they welcome him, they welcomed his message. And his message was fruitful and people repented and changed. That's the grace of God. And then he went out of the city and, he, and God provided the plant in the midst of the heat of the day. That's the grace of God. But all Jonah could think of is this is what I deserve. I deserve this plant. And they deserve to be punished and judged. When you get to a moment in your life where what God wants and what you want are not the same, step back and trace the grace of God. The hundreds and hundreds of thousands of times He's provided for you and protected you and spoken to you and loved you and forgiven you. And in the context of grace, you and I will sense our hearts shifting so that we end up with the heart of Jesus when he says in these amazing, powerful, but simple words, not my will, but your will be done. Let's pray. God, we say that together. Not my will, but your will be done. In the spirit of prayer, somebody in here, in fact, a handful of somebody's, you, your relationship with God can best be described lately as fighting 
you are fighting, actively fighting off the will of God. You know it. You're trying to ignore it. You're trying to sleep your way through it. But you are fighting. And the invitation for you today is just to lay down your resistance. Stop taking the long way. Take the right way. So God set us free from our own resistance to what's good and best for us. In Jesus' name, amen. Why don't you stand to your feet? We're gonna...